We now have the privilege of turning to God's holy word. Our first reading will come from Psalm 29, and I invite you to turn together to Psalm 29. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Psalm 29, hear the word of the Lord. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now let's turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, we'll read verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Now I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, we'll read verses 20 and 21 together. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And I'll invite Pastor Ivy to uh, pray a prayer of illumination with us and then bring us God's holy word. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we lift our hearts up to you this evening. And we acknowledge that there is no other. And that to you and to you alone belong all glory and honor and dominion and power forever and ever throughout all the ages to come. Lord, we acknowledge also that we are unable to declare all of your glory because your glory is infinite. And yet, Lord, you have given to us your word. And so we pray that you would help us from your word to declare those things that you have spoken to us and to hear them. And hearing them, we pray that we would be changed and transformed by them by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've heard about the Reformation, you've probably heard of the five solas. The solas are a way of summarizing the aspects of the gospel that had been lost in darkness, in the darkness of what is sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages. Reformation was a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was these five solas that the reformers of the 16th and 17th centuries were emphasizing the most. We were, we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as he is revealed in the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. Sola is simply that Latin word for alone. Our passage tonight is essentially a doxology. In our worship at Reformation Presbyterian Church in Virginia Beach, we sing a doxology at the end of 
every worship service. And by doing so, we're reminding ourselves that our worship is from God and for God and to God, or to put it another way, our worship in all of its forms and circumstances and elements is for the glory of God alone. We don't worship for ourselves, ultimately. We worship God for his own sake and for his own glory. And by concluding our worship with a doxology, we're concluding our worship with a final offering of praise to God. That's what a doxology is. We're reminding ourselves that God is worthy of our praise because he is God and he is God alone. He is perfect in his being, perfect in all his attributes. When you put them all together, if you could really come up with a list of them, which you can't, all that God is in himself, that is his glory. And it's the greatness of the glory of God, especially as God has revealed his glory to us in the person and work of his son that stirs our hearts to praise him for all that he is. But we also praise God for all that he's done for us in our redemption through Jesus Christ. And so it's at this point that Paul breaks into an inspired doxology here in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is very conscious of where he is in the flow of his thought in the book of Ephesians. The immediate context is his prayer, verses 16 to 18. That prayer has as its focus the apostles' pastoral desire that the Ephesians would know the incomprehensible love of Christ for them. Just think about that for a moment. To know the incomprehensible love of Christ. What is it to know that which is incomprehensible? And yet God has revealed the incomprehensible to us in the person and work of his son. It's something that can be known, this love of Christ for us. This is a pivot point in the book of Ephesians. Paul is about to turn his attention from the doctrinal and theological section of his epistle to the practical section. And what he wants to do here is to stretch the limits of the saints' thinking, not only about who God is, but also now having meditated on who God is in himself and on who God is toward his people in Christ, Paul now wants them to meditate on the limitlessness of what God is able to accomplish for them through the death and resurrection and present ministry at God's right hand, that ministry of intercession of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. You see, to understand what God is, who God is, and to understand who God is for us in Jesus, is to understand the vastness and the greatness of what God is able and willing to do for his people through faith in Jesus Christ. And so tonight, we want to meditate on this doxology here in these two verses, and we want to see how it stretches us beyond what we might otherwise imagine or think that God is, and what we might imagine or think his relationship to his children to be. We hope to do that as we consider two things tonight. First, the greatness of God's power, verse 20, and second, the greatness of God's glory, verse 21. Let's look first at the greatness of God's power. 
The first thing that we want to observe is how Paul points our attention to the incomprehensible greatness of the power of God toward us who believe. That seems like such an obvious thing for Paul to say that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. And that way of putting it is familiar to us, isn't it? Perhaps it wouldn't have been so familiar to the Ephesians. It's a phrase we use in our prayers. It's a phrase that we love to hear and to say and to teach to our children. It's such a wonderful expression that Thomas Manton refers to this verse no fewer than 10 times in his collected works, most often when he's unfolding the riches of the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. But Calvin reminds us in both his commentary on this passage and in his sermons on Ephesians that it's quite often at this very point, at this very point of the infinite immeasurability of God's power toward us that we falter and we faint and we grow weary and we begin to doubt. Calvin says we're tempted to think that because God has shown some small portion of his great power toward us that he might not be willing to continue showing his power so abundantly toward us in our lives. But this is merely the evidence that our thoughts of God are too small. Our thoughts of God are too small and we haven't even begun to fathom the depths of the love of God the Father for us and for our children in his Son. Paul uses an expression here that he uses also in 1 Timothy 1.14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. There he's describing the greatness of the mercy and love of God toward him despite the fact that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Paul knows that if he were to look for any reason in himself for the greatness of God's grace toward him in Christ, he would do so in vain. And that's how you and I ought to think of ourselves as well. But it's against this dark, this exceedingly dark backdrop of his own depravity and sin that Paul is able to see what he calls the exceeding abundance of the grace of God. And here in Ephesians 3, Paul uses that Same exact expression. The word that Paul uses here is what we might call a hyper superlative. A hyper superlative. You use a superlative when you when you want to compare two things. You you might want to compare two Reformation theologians, for example. And so you might say Luther was great, but John Calvin was the greatest. Of course, Calvin himself would have been quite grieved to hear you say that. He was a man so humble it's said of him that he asked to be buried in an unmarked grave so that people wouldn't idolize him or make a relic of him after he was dead. What Paul does here is he goes beyond the superlative and he uses a hyper superlative, a super superlative. He he basically invents a word in order to express the thought that he is trying to communicate. It's that hard to communicate what he's trying to say. And so what Paul wants the Ephesians and us to understand is that God is not only able to do far more than we ask and far more than we can even imagine or conceive, rather he is able to do 
hyper abundantly above all that we could ever ask or even think to ask. His point is to get across, even with the weakness and imprecision of human words, something of the limitless vastness of the power and grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you remember what what uh, Paul has, has said, or what Paul prayed in the verses just before this, Paul has a pastoral concern. His pastoral concern is that the Ephesians, living in the midst of a sensual and seductive pagan culture, and seeing the, the preacher to the Gentiles, and, and seeing that he is the preacher to the Gentiles, Paul in, in chains in a, in a Roman prison, his concern is that they might not lose heart. His concern is that they might actually lose sight of what God is able to do for them because they're looking at things through a carnal lens. Paul wants the Ephesians to do what the writer to the Hebrews says again and again and again, to remain steadfast in the confidence, in the hope of their confession, knowing that God is worthy of all honor and praise and knowing with the greatest possible certainty that whatever God promises, he is most certainly able and willing to do. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is able, most certainly able, to do everything that he has promised in his word to do? You can only believe that if the power of the Spirit of God is at work in your heart. Paul has a pastoral concern. He wants God's people to understand who God is and what God is able to do. Matthew Henry puts it this way, There is an inexhaustible fullness of grace and mercy in God, which the prayers of all the saints can never draw dry. Whatever we may ask or think to ask, still God is able to do more, abundantly more, exceedingly abundantly more. Thomas Manton says this, you need not trouble yourselves about his willingness. Do you ever trouble yourself about his willingness? You need not. You need not. Manton goes on to say he is so good and gracious, prone and ready to do good, for he is your heavenly father. He's your heavenly father. But that which is most questioned is the sufficiency of God. We, we question the sufficiency of God, the ability of, of God to do what he says he is able to do. We question whether or not God can really do what he says that he can do. But determine for once that the, that the Lord can do what he has said he will do, and that is a great relief to your soul, Manton goes on to say. Our wants are not so many, but God is able to supply them. Our enemies and corruptions are not so strong, but God is able to subdue them. Surely your heavenly Father will do what is in the power of his hand. This should encourage us to go to the mighty God who made heaven and earth and all things out of nothing. Now, what do you think Paul offers as the evidence that God is able to do hyper abundantly above all that we could ask or think? The evidence is back in chapter 1 
where he prayed that the Ephesians might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. God is able to do hyper abundantly above all that we ask or think because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and seated at God's right hand and because he ever lives to intercede for us and to offer our prayers and our praises and our petitions up to God as our mediator and our perfectly righteous high priest. And so dear brother or sister in Christ, to believe that Christ is risen from the dead and reigning at God's right hand and to believe that you are in him and that he is in you and that he is yours and that you are his. This is the ground for you to take hold of this promise and of this wonderful provision of the power of God toward you in Christ Jesus. To doubt God's power or ability or willingness to do exceedingly great things for you and his son is to doubt the efficacy and the sufficiency not only of the atonement of Christ, but also of his resurrection and his ascension and of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is given to you without measure and without restraint. And so you see, that's the point that Paul makes in the second part of this verse. This infinitely and incomprehensibly great power of God is not only outside of us in the transcendent majesty of God's being, but this power, this incomprehensible power is also at work in us. In us. Paul has already said that very thing when he said that the same power which raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who have been raised up by Jesus from the deadness of our trespasses and sins. Not only that, but this is the same power that is at work in the church, which is described in Ephesians 2.22 as the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so what Paul is saying to paraphrase Matthew Henry is that if you want to if you want the proof that God is able to do far more for you than you can think or even ask or conceive then just remember what he has done for you in your conversion. And so often I tell the young people at Reformation Presbyterian Church you don't need to have a dramatic conversion experience. In fact, I really don't want you to have a dramatic conversion experience. I want you to grow up under the ordinary means of grace, never knowing a day in your life that God has not been at work in your heart and life. And young people, that is dramatic, you see. That's the power of God. That's the power of the resurrection at work in your hearts. That is the drama of the ages at work in you. And so you look to what God has done in your conversion. The same power that God is exercising toward you day by day is the power that raised you out of your grave of sin and, and will raise you up out of the literal grave when he comes again. What does this tell us then about 
what God will do for us when we pray. In dependence on his spirit and in accordance with his word and in the name of his son for those things that are on our hearts to pray. And what an encouragement this is to pray. Everyone I talk to, and I myself would say the same. I don't pray as I should. I don't pray as often as I should. I don't pray as much as I should. And I'm reminded of that so often. But God hears and answers the prayers of his people. Do we really believe that? Powerful answers to our prayers are not dependent upon the strength or the fervency or the intensity of our prayers. If they were, our prayers would never be answered at all because they are never what they ought to be. But our encouragement to pray is expressed so well in the language of the hymn by John Newton. You are coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. It would be good to remind ourselves of that often, wouldn't it? Especially as we prepare our hearts to pray. Why do we have not? We have not because we ask not. And when we ask, we ask amiss. The problem is not with God and his power or his ability or his willingness or his sufficiency. The problem is with us. The problem is that we don't know the greatness of the goodness and power of God as we should or we've forgotten it. The problem is that we don't know the God who has given his son in order that we might know him. That brings us to our second point tonight. The greatness of God's glory. One of the constant themes that Paul comes back to again and again in his letter to the Ephesians is the theme of the glory of God. God is infinitely glorious and for that reason is worthy of infinite praise and worship from his creatures. And Paul had already said this in chapter 1, verse 6, where he speaks of the eternal predestinating and adopting love of God toward us in Christ as a truth that is to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us, us, accepted in the beloved. Again, in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that we, the objects of this predestinating love, who have trusted in Christ by grace alone and through faith alone are in ourselves both reasons for the praise of the glory of God, but also instruments and vessels of that praise. You are a reason for praise if you are in Christ. Parents, your children are a reason for praise, not because of your parenting, but because of the glory of God if your children are in Christ. You are a reason, but you are also a vessel of the glory of God in Christ. You are an instrument of the glory of God in Christ. Paul uses the same phrase again in verse 14 to refer to the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, which is to the praise of his glory. And the point of it all is brought out more clearly in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, where our salvation in Christ is shown to be entirely by the grace of God, not according to human works, and that even our good works are prepared beforehand by God 
who enables us to walk in them all for his own glory and also that our lives in this world might be entirely to the praise and the glory of the one who is at work in us and who has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul's burden is to do two things. First, to show that the eternal and transcendent God of glory has drawn very near to us, has graciously condescended, has come down to us, and has come not only in the flesh in Jesus Christ, but also has come to indwell us by the Spirit in such a way that his power might be at work in us, uniting us to himself and making his home in us and with us as his new covenant tabernacle and temple. But second, Paul wants to show that this means that all glory for our salvation belongs to God and God alone, and that not a single particle of glory belongs to us. In the words of the psalmist, not unto us, not unto us, but to God be the glory. This raises a question as we look again to our text. Because what does Paul say here? To him be glory in the church. How is it that the glory of God can be said to be to God in the church? Well, it's not the church in herself and through herself that that God receives glory. Notice what Paul adds here, by Christ Jesus. Glory can only be given to God rightly and in the right measure through the mediation of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to approach God, and that's through Christ. But what Paul is getting at is that it is in the church and only in the church where God is truly glorified and where the praises of God are lifted up as a sweet-smelling fragrance and an aroma of thankfulness unto God. That only happens in the church. It doesn't happen perfectly in the church, but it only happens in the church that God is receiving this glory as his people praise and worship him through his son. It's only in the church that Christ comes and makes his abode and stands in our midst. He walks in the midst of the lampstands to offer our worship up to God in such a way that God may be pleased with it. He could never be pleased except through this mediation of Jesus Christ. It's only in the church that Christ comes and stands in the midst of his people and leads his people in worship. Christ comes and makes his abode with us. Calvin at this point is quite adamant that our worship of God in private and in our families is not enough. It's not enough. He says it this way. It's not enough that every one of us should privately acknowledge the benefits that God has bestowed upon him but that we must all join together in that mind. For if the body is comfortably at ease, surely no member will be so addicted to itself that it will have no regard to all the rest. And what Paul is really getting at here is that the church 
especially in her worship on the Lord's day when he promises to be present in the midst of his people as he is present nowhere else and at no other time. When God is present with his people on the Lord's day, there you see the great theater of the glory of God in this world. Right here, right now. It's the theater of God's glory. When we say that the church is the theater of God's glory in the world, we're not saying that God needs the church to display his glory. Not at all. God is glorious in himself, and his glory is made known in all the works of his hands. But the church bears witness to the glory of God in a way that only the church can, as the sphere in which God is revealing his grace and his mercy and the incomprehensibility of his great love to sinners. The grace of God is on display in us and through us and by us, especially in our worship and especially as the gospel is proclaimed and lived out by us in this world. And that causes us to reflect on the significance of the phrase to all generations forever and ever. Matthew Henry summarizes the whole train of thoughts well when he says the seat of God's praises is in the church. That little rent of praise which God receives from this world is from the church, a sacred society constituted for the glory of God, every particular member of which both Jew and Gentile concurs in this work of praising God. The mediator of these praises is Jesus Christ. All God's gifts come from him to us, through the hand of Christ, and all our praises pass from us to him through the same hand. And God should and will be praised thus throughout all ages, world without end, for he will ever have a church to praise him, and he will ever have his tribute of praise from his church. Amen. So be it, and so it will certainly be. Christ is building his church in the gates of hell cannot prevail. Calvin says this one phrase to all generations forever should give us confidence that the church will always be preserved in the world no matter what comes, no matter what forces the world might array against her, no matter what armies of hell come against her. The church will always be preserved in this world and will always bear witness of the glory of God in his son, Jesus Christ, in this world. You see, if God establishes those ordinances of the sun and the moon and says that they shall never pass away, then what does he say of his church? It shall not pass away. I am with you even to the end of the age. He says that he ought he says that we ought to be assured by all of this that although Satan contrives as much as he can to blot out the remembrance of God and to make as much as he can to blot out the remembrance of God 
So that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ may be virtually set aside, yet God will overcome by all his power, so that the church shall still continue, and the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ shall avail, despite the cruelty of tyrants and the practices of enemies within the household and of such as would overthrow the whole building. Nothing can prevail against God's church. What is it that guarantees that this praise of the glory of God will continue eternally in God's church? Only one thing and one thing only. The death and resurrection and ascension to God's right hand of Jesus Christ. He himself in our human flesh is the guarantee that our praises shall never end and that Our reason for praise shall endure from age to age and from generation to generation throughout all eternity, world without end. And so the question for us tonight is what is the proper response to these things, to the glory of God, to the glory of God in his church? The only proper response is worship. The worship of the triune God. Ultimately, this is the goal of the gospel itself, the goal of the gospel, the goal of our preaching, the goal of our witness in this world. What is the goal? It is, is it just to get people saved? Is that the goal? Or is the goal bigger than that? Is the goal more comprehensive than that? The goal is God himself. The goal is the glory of God. And God is glorified in the worship of his redeemed. And through our worship, or I should say, and though our worship in this life will be imperfect and unworthy of the God of glory, yet God is still pleased by our worship as we offer it up to him through his son. That's how God is pleased with our worship. Not because we worship, not because we offer it, because it comes to him through his son. And the day is coming. It's coming very soon when we will worship him perfectly, both in body and soul, in the life of the world to come. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the longing of God's people. How confident are you that the God who redeemed you is able to do for you far more abundantly, exceedingly more abundantly than all that you could think or ask? What is there in your life that seems like an insurmountable obstacle? I'm sure you have something that seems like an insurmountable obstacle. There's something. Is there any obstacle in your life that's too great for the God who is at work in you by the very same power that raised Jesus up from the dead? Have you really cast your cares upon the Lord in assurance that he cares for you? What is it that seems to be the greatest hindrance to your communion with God right now? Is there some pattern of sin that's keeping you from a closer walk with Jesus? He's able to destroy that pattern of sin. He's able to take it away. He's able to conquer it. You're not able to do so, but he's able to do so because he has all power and all glory belongs to him. Is there, 
Is there someone else's unconfessed sin that's hindering you? Someone else's sin against you, is that what's hindering you? God is able to do far more abundantly than you ask or think. He's able to bring repentance and restoration and reconciliation, even when you think it's impossible. He's able to do it. Is it your relationship with your spouse? He's able to do far more exceedingly abundantly than you ask or think. Is it your anxieties about your children? He's able to do far, far more abundantly, exceedingly abundantly than you ask or think. The greatness of God's power toward us who believe is measured only by the greatness of the love of Christ for us at the cross. And the greatness of God's glory is measured by the greatness of the love and long-suffering of Christ as he offers up endless prayers for us from the throne of grace, interceding for us with an endless intercession because his glory is revealed in the praises of a church that will give glory to him to all generations forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious God and Father, we are unworthy of this great privilege of being your people. We are unworthy of this great privilege of bearing witness to and worshiping you. We are unworthy of being called your children, unworthy of that wondrous adoption that we have in Christ, unworthy to be called heirs of heaven itself in him. We are unworthy, O Lord, but you are worthy. And your glory is high and lifted up, higher than the highest heavens. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us, having a glimpse of your glory, to worship you, and to give ourselves as living sacrifices unto you throughout all the days of our pilgrimage in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.